Welcome to the Freedom City Church podcast, a podcast designed to help your faith thrive. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, I want to introduce a man, a great man. This man is someone who, uh, what happened? He came over from America in a missions in a missionary organization to the world. He's Presbyterian by trade. Um, went into a Church of Christ building, and then he then rented out a room to a Pentecostal youth group. And so if you want to understand someone's for the kingdom of God, and it's all about Jesus, this man is an example of that. Um, Fremantle Church has gone from strength to strength, and we're so excited to just champion them on. They, it's, they, they call Fremantle the church's graveyard, yet there is a thriving church in the middle of Fremantle on High Street that is reaching the lost that is developing and discipling people, but is also creating this new narrative of what the church could look like. So um, I am so excited to have a friend, a brother, someone, a mentor, someone who I've called in my hardest days uh, to come and share the word with you today. So let's give a round of applause for Pastor Lee Hinkle as he comes on up. I'd rather have a close contact than a close encounter of the third kind. That's how old I am. Just reveal that. Hmm. Uh, I, I want to first say uh, hello from my wife, Shannon. Uh, she was very, uh, she was excited what she was doing today because she's leading worship at Fremantle Church, but she was very sad that she was leading worship at Fremantle Church because she loves to come here when we come here. And so I was talking to one of our leaders as I was leaving today because I was there just making sure things were set up and ready to go, Because not because I'm a control freak, but I'm a little bit of a control freak. And uh, and I was saying, hey, I'm going to Freedom City. He goes, oh, yeah, you, it's about once a year or once every, yeah, 18 months you kind of go. Yeah, it's like, that's great. We love it. Love being here. But she was really upset that she couldn't be here. So she says, hello. And she says she will come and see you uh, hopefully soon. Um, I'm going to read our passage first, and then we're going to uh, come back to it. And, and, and Because I think it, it really hits something that our society and our world is going through and struggling with today. And, and so um, it is in the book of Genesis, uh, and it is in Genesis chapter 9. And we'll start in verse Nineteen. So if you have a device that you want to open that device up to there, we'll, we'll jump in there. And we'll start actually verse 18. It says this, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered, in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. 
Now, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. And, the flood, and after the flood, Noah lived for 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, open our eyes, open our hearts, let us hear and see what you have for us today as we come to this place of seeing a man's sin and what it looks like for us to engage in that place. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So how many of you have been at a conference or you've been in a, a, in a new classroom or a new setting and they've gathered you together in groups and they've said, we want you to get in smaller groups and then we're going to do a thing that we call an icebreaker so that you can get to know one another. Yeah? One of the best icebreakers that gets brought up at that time is to share your most embarrassing moment. Now what that's doing is it's causing every one of us to become a liar. Because there is no way that in a group of new people, you are about to share your most embarrassing moment. You might share your fourth most embarrassing moment or your 400th most embarrassing moment, but you will never share your most embarrassing moment. You probably won't share that moment with anyone unless they happen to have been present for that most embarrassing moment. And that's because we have this emotion that springs up in us called shame. Shame that we don't want people to know that we would do something so stupid or so wrong. That we want to hide from that. I believe today that there is an epidemic of shame that is both imprisoning people in that shame, but it is also being used by people to build themselves up in their own self-righteousness. I mean that in two ways. So, first of all... Um, the great theologian Nick Cave. Do you know Nick Cave, musician? He's got this great website blog called The Red Hand Files. And in that, he answers questions that come from people. And a few years ago, a question was brought to him about cancel culture. And this is what he said in response to that. He said, Francis, you've asked about cancel culture. As far as I can see, cancel culture is mercy's antithesis. Political correctness has grown to become the unhappiest religion in the world. It's once honorable attempt to reimagine our society in a more equitable way now embodies all the worst aspects of religion that it has to offer and none of its beauty. Moral certainty and self-righteousness shorn even of the capacity of redemption. It has become quite literally bad religion run amok. So when I say there are people trapped in this idea that I can be righteous by putting and shaming everybody else, that's what Nick is getting at. Bernine Brown, who is a TED talker, podcaster, social scientist, was interviewed by the ABC in December. And she was talking about guilt and shame. And she said this, she said there's a big misconception about shame or guilt, that they're the same thing. They're not. What's interesting is guilt gets a really bad rap, but guilt is a very socially adaptive emotion, she said. Guilt says this, I did something wrong, but shame 
says, I am that thing. Guilt is cognitive dissonance. Guilt says, I've done something or I failed to do something that is aligned with my values. And it feels awful. I need to make amends. Shame, however, is a lot more damaging because it says you are a bad person. In a social setting, shame is death. Shame is the fear of being unworthy of love, connection, and belonging, and the absence of love. So we can be trapped as well in our own shame. Ed Welch, who is a pastor and counselor in a book called Shame Interrupted, defines shame this way. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something you're associated with. You feel exposed and humiliated. He says, or to strengthen the language, you are disgraced because you acted less than human, you were treated as if you were less than human, or you were associated with something less than human, and there were witnesses. Noah got plastered, passed out buck naked. That's shameful. And so he felt that shame. What I want to talk about in this scripture and look further out is how then we engage when we feel trapped in our own shame or when we see someone else in shame. So it's good for us to look at what happens when we feel shame. I think there's three places in the Bible, and we'll get back to Noah, but I first want to talk about this one. Shame causes us to what? Retreat. We just see the first place that shame enters into the world. It enters in right after the fall. Adam and Eve. And it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees and of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Not that he didn't know. And then he said to him, I heard a sound in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Oftentimes when we feel less than human, catch this, when we feel less than human because something has happened to us or we've done something or we've been associated with something that causes others to feel less than human, the way that God created us to be then we will feel shame. And one of our first reactions is to hide from it, to isolate ourselves. So if you feel shame, one thing that you might do is stop attending church. You might stop going to small groups. You might stop spending time with those friends because you feel like you need to hide. And so the Bible says, yeah, that's a way that we respond to it. We hide. Sometimes when we feel shame, when we're less than human or we feel like something has happened to us that is less than human, has treated us that way, is we then reinvent. We change the name. We rename it so that we don't have to feel shame about it. Most often this happens when it's us doing the action or us being involved in it. We recognize something's off. We begin to feel like we're not actually the way that God designed us to be. And we think, how do I deal with this? And instead of operating in it in the God-honoring, a spirit-led way, we decide that it's better to rename it. 
We see that happening in Isaiah 5, 20 and 21. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. It happens over and over and over again in the book of Judges. It says they did what was right in their own mind. And Romans 1, 18 tells us this, that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Why? For what can be known about God is plainly seen, but they've exchanged that for idols, for wood and stubble. Saying, no, no, that's God. And so what sometimes happens when we act in a way that is against the way God has made us to be as humans is we will say to ourselves, I need to redefine this. I need to make it sound better than what it is. And so we'll re-identify it, not dealing with the shame that we have. So we reinvent, or we run and hide, or we do what Noah did. What does Noah do in this place? When he feels shame, he retaliates. Notice what takes place. He's the one who gets drunk. He's the one who passes out. He's the one that's laying there naked, and his son comes in and sees him. Now, his son doesn't do anything good necessarily, and we'll get to him about how we deal with people when they're in shame. But let's talk about somebody who has shame. Noah has shame in that moment. And what he does is he retaliates. He comes outside of the tent. He looks at his youngest son and he curses, not him. Because what's the point in cursing the younger son? He doesn't get much blessing. He curses his eldest grandson. Oh, check this. He says, Canaan, that's who I'm going to curse. I'm going to curse your oldest child who would receive your blessing. I'm going to make sure he gets cursed. And he curses him. He says, you will be the servant of all. You will not prosper. Now, as an aside, let me say this. This passage has been used through, by many throughout history <laughs> to enslave and oppress people. They have said that this is God cursing someone. But it is very clear that's not what's happening here. It is very clear that it is Noah feeling shame, retaliating by cursing. It is Noah who doesn't want to deal with that shame to recognize what can happen within that shame, and instead he pushes out and he responds in anger. Haven't you ever done that? As you're walking down the street and you trip over something that's not there, you turn around and who do you blame? Whatever was not there. That tr you retaliate. That's small, right? But we do that. We move in ways that when we are called out or caught, if we don't hide and if we don't redefine it, we tend to say, oh, it's not my fault. If that wouldn't have been there, oh, it's that person's fault. We come up with excuses. And to make sure those excuses stick, we make sure it's blamed on somebody else. And we retaliate. But that's not what God calls us to do in shame. See, shame actually can be used to bring us to that place. I think Brene Brown is so smart in that she's saying shame and guilt are different. Because when we feel that first pang of shame, it's that 
identification that something is off. And it gives us the opportunity to uh, realign with the one who has perfected all things. And so it gives us the ability to say, I don't have to be trapped. I don't have to stay still. I don't have to put the blame on anyone else. I don't have to hide from anyone. But I can boldly step into this place because God is one who is merciful. But it helps for us to have a culture that walks with those who are in shame. And we see two examples of that in this passage. The first one is Ham. Ham who gets his son cursed. Ham who comes in and he sees his dad stretched out, passed out buck. And he walks out of the tent and he goes to his brothers and he tells him something. Now we don't know. We don't know what he says. But we clearly know that it's not good. Because if it were good, then his brothers wouldn't do what they did. And Noah wouldn't be upset like he's upset. right? Because something would have already taken place. But because he does something off, we see the retaliation take place. Now, that is all part of Noah's sin there, right? Ham didn't cause him to do that, right? But he obviously didn't respond in a way that covered his dad. He probably comes out and he either says to his brothers, whoa, get a load of dad. Like he tied one on, he is passed out, like you should check it out. It's hilarious. Or he might have come out and said, I cannot believe God would choose that man. That sinful drunkard. That man who would get so drunk that he would lay there naked, just revealing himself to anybody who might happen to pass by the tent. How awful is that person? There's no road for repentance for him. You see, that idea of canceling that person, saying there's not a road for redemption, as Nick Cave said. So we know that there's a a place that our hearts sometimes go there because we want to have our own righteousness. But what we learn from the older brothers, Shem and Japheth, is what to do. Notice what they do. They hear the news from their brother. They don't even deal with him that we know of. They go get a blanket, and they put it on their shoulders, and they walk in backwards and bend down and lay it over their father and then walk out, never looking at the thing that could cause their dad shame, never paying attention to what was going on, but moving in to redress him. Now, this is not a covering up. This is a redressing, and there's a big difference here. Covering up is just us working with the other person who's in shame to redefine what's going on. Oh, no, no, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. It happens to all of us. Especially when it's something they've done. Sadly, we see that quite a bit. Especially in the evangelical world right now. What they're doing is redressing. They're saying, Something has gone on that's wrong, but that doesn't mean you're left naked. Let's cover you up in a way that gives you dignity again. Let's cover you up in a way that allows you to come out of your tent and be restored. 
Redressing allows for restoration. It brings you back into community. It brings you back into the place of knowing right and wrong. It brings you back in the place where you can be humble and receive grace instead of giving aggravation. So they come in and they cover up their dad so that he can come out and be restored. Now, (laughs) the problem is is we actually can't do that. (laughs) We're really bad. We're either too offended or too afraid to be honest with ourselves and with the others around us. We can't imagine that our shame can be transformed. And that's what's awesome about Christ. That's what's so great about Jesus. Isaiah 61.10 reminds us of this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for He has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride is adorned herself with her jewels. 2 Corinthians reminds us of this. For our sake He made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That there is nothing that has happened to you to make you less than human. There is nothing that you have done that might make you less than human. That there is nothing you've been a part of that has caused others to feel less than human that will separate you from the righteousness of Christ because He became that very thing so that you can be redressed. How amazing is that? That we have the ability then to be bold in our brokenness and say, I screwed up. Enabling others to come along with us and redress us. Nick Cave, again, the amazing theologian that he is, also answered this question. What is mercy? And he said, mercy is a value that should be at the heart of any functioning and tolerant society. Mercy ultimately acknowledges that we are all imperfect and in doing so allows us the oxygen to breathe, to feel protected within our society through our mutual fallibility. Without mercy, society loses its soul and devours itself. So what does that mean for you today? If you feel that you are trapped in shame today, hear this. Remember that your shame is not the destination, but it is a prompting by God in his pursuit of steadfast love. God allows shame to happen, not in order for you to be trapped in it, but for you to move to guilt so that you move to repentance or so that you will recognize his great mercy. Hear me say this. It is not the place that you need to rest. Actually, it's the place you need to move through so that you can see God's pursuit and steadfast love for you. If you're feeling trapped in shame, remember that in Christ, God has covered all things, and you are new, and you can stand unashamed. 1 John reminds us that if we confess our sins to God, He can always be trusted to forgive us, and He takes our sins away. I want to tell you this, and I believe this to be true about Freedom City. There's a community 
hear of fellow ragamuffins and ne'er-do-wells and recovering hypocrites who have discovered God's mercy and steadfast love and they're ready to walk with you. They're ready to step in to life and be intentionally intrusive with God's mercy and grace. And here's the other thing. They need you as well. Your story and who you are in Christ is vital for the wholeness of the body of Christ here at Freedom City. In this particular place and globally. Now, I'm not saying that God is going to take those things that made you feel less than human and that he's purposefully let those things happen so that you can learn a lesson. That's not how God works. But God, knowing that the world has fallen, is ready to step in and restore you in that place. And he needs you. He needs your story. And how do we walk with people then? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to learn how to practice redressing in the righteousness of God. We need to be able to be able to sit there and hear when people are hurting and they're sharing where they've been trapped with shame, not to let our mouths gape open, (laughs) but to be able to say, thank you for sharing. Not to try and one-up them. Well, this is what happened to me. But to allow it to sit there so that you can hear it and feel it and know it to be quiet and listen. But then to offer care and compassion. To say what great courage it takes to share that with us. How amazing it is that you feel open enough in this place to do that. How can we walk along with you in restoration in that place? We also need to practice godly shame that empowers relationships and turns people to the kindness of God that leads to repentance. That means this, we need to be calling what's wrong, wrong, and what's right, right. When we know that people are walking in sin, we have to say, in relationship, that's wrong. (laughs) And we need to be willing to hear that to ourselves as well. Because it leads to this third practice, the practice of repentance. Because a practice of repentance leads to a culture of repentance and restoration. That we, walking with those who are in shame, we have to be ready to repent. We have to be the ones that run first to repentance. We run as quickly as we can. When when we have disagreements in our home, when we've been hurt by others in our home, there are times in that place that we say in our house, who's going to be the winner of the race? Who's going to get to repentance fastest? Now, we know that there are sometimes places where the person who has been hurt has no place of repentance at all, right? They're they're on the complete 100% receiving end, and we would never call them to repent. But we definitely will call the people who have done that damage to repent. And we should, in our hearts, be prepared in every situation to be able to go, what is the place that I need to repent? Where is it that I need to say, please forgive me? Because it's in that place we build the example of walking through our shame, not being trapped in our shame. Now, when you woke up this morning, you probably thought, oh, I'm going to go hear a sermon about a drunk man that gets naked. That's even in the Bible. That's why I like to remind people that the Bible is not PG. It's M. But hopefully, in hearing these words about Noah and seeing how he engages, but more importantly, how his sons engage, we can know that in this epidemic that is shame, we're prepared through Christ to walk to wholeness. Let me pray for us.
Father, you are good and all you do is good. Let us hold on to those things. If there is anything that's not from you today, we ask that it burns up and it goes away. But if something is from you today, we ask that it take root in our hearts, that it springs forth good fruit and it brings glory and honor and praise to you. Jesus, it's all in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Freedom City Podcast. If there is any way that we can help you survive and thrive in your everyday life, we'd love to connect with you. If you'd want to know more about who we are, just head to www.freedomcityfremantle.com. Until next time, take care.